0: Welcome to the New Mexico News Podcast. Headlines and stories from the land of enchantment. Brought to you by
1: KRQE. Here's Chris McKee and Gabrielle Burkhart. Chris, you've lived in Albuquerque for a decade now. Have you ever had an encounter with someone on the streets or maybe reported a news story on someone who likely had mental health issues?
0: Yeah, a couple things come to mind. I remember uh, waking up at my apartment once and looking outside on the patio and seeing there was somebody sleeping right in front of the front door and they didn't have half of their clothes on it was really hard to know what to do i didn't know if i should call police but i quickly realized that this this was not um, somebody who was in their right mind they eventually left and there was no problem didn't call police the other thing i really do think of though is the reporting that we've done particularly when it comes to james boyd he was a homeless camper in the foothills of Albuquerque, and for anyone who doesn't know the story, essentially there was an encounter between Albuquerque police and him. He was camping where he shouldn't have been in an open space that was controlled by the city of Albuquerque, and according to the city's rules, there was no camping up there. And he, as well, had known mental health issues. It eventually ended with Boyd's death. He was shot to death by Albuquerque police, and that happened right before the Department of Justice put out its settlement agreement which very much had a lot to say about encounters with people with mental health issues, with mental illness, and how police handled that. So, yeah, it's been a something that has crossed different paths, personal and professional paths over the years.
1: Yeah, we, we can link to some of that James Boyd coverage if you're not familiar. We also mentioned it in our conversation with former U.S. Attorney Damon Martinez on a previous episode if you want to check that out. But the topic of mental health and behavioral health has so many elements to it. And as you know, when I started investigating criminal cases that involved people with mental health issues, it took me down a long rabbit hole that I wasn't quite expecting at first. It led me to publish two recent investigations on the issue of competency in the courts, which we can get into a little bit more later. But basically, I set out to try to answer the question of, what happens when someone with an apparent mental health issue is arrested?
0: And that answer gets complicated. We'll post links to Gabby's investigation in our show notes. But We both decided that the topic of mental health issues in New Mexico's criminal justice system and in the community in general, it is ripe for a discussion here on this podcast.
1: So joining us for today's discussion is Casey Quirk, a Social Work Unit Director at the Law Offices of the Public Defender here in Albuquerque, or LOPD. Casey, thanks for joining us.
2: Thank you for having me, glad to be here.
1: So I first met you and interviewed you for these broadcast stories that we were talking about competency. And I wish we could have aired that whole conversation, but it's way too long even for a five minute news story. But here's our chance to get back into it. So first broadly, tell us about your background in social work. How did you first get into this profession and what led you to your role What do you do exactly in your current role? Well, that's probably a longer story than we have time for today. Maybe the condensed version, yeah. Okay, the
2: the nutshell is I'm originally from the state of Michigan. I graduated with my master's degree in social work in 1988 from Wayne State University, yay Detroit, and pretty much from that time on, I have worked either in direct services or in a managerial or administrative role with some of the either deepest need or highest risk populations of people that we see in our community. So HIV and AIDS, I worked street-based outreach in the city of Detroit with women involved in prostitution. I was the executive director of the domestic violence program Esperanza here in Santa Fe also the executive director of the Rape Crisis Center, and then the executive director of Crossroads for Women, which worked with homeless and formerly incarcerated women, which then, and I also taught um, at the graduate level for Highlands University Nonprofit Management. And, And that's actually the link for me to the LOPD because it was in fact, one of my former students who suggested I apply for the job as the social work unit director for the LOPD Largely, I'm presuming because of my work with women exiting the criminal legal system.
1: So what is it you do as the social work unit director? We're a statewide unit. So
2: what that means for us is that everywhere there is a public defender's office in the state of New Mexico, we also have situated either social workers or case managers or both. And those roles are oftentimes very interchangeable. Uh, What we're responsible for is reaching out into the community to try to access um, resources and support for individuals who are going through the criminal legal process in hopes that we can provide the court with a plan that is an alternative to their incarceration. So we're seeking options outside of the carceral system necessarily to place people instead of putting them behind bars and and to the point of the story we know that people with mental health issues don't do better in jails and prisons typically so we you know and from the social work lens we prefer treatment to incarceration almost any day.
0: So, the phrases behavioral health and competency, people may not always be familiar with what that means exactly. We know that competency in court usually refers to whether someone can assist in their own defense and understand even what's going on. We also know that behavioral health oftentimes refers to mental health. It can also be other components there as well. But how do you define those terms in your line of work. What do you tell people about behavioral health and competency and what they mean?
2: You're right. When we're talking about competency in court, we're talking about the ability for somebody to participate in their own defense, to understand the process, to know what the role of the attorney is, what the role of the prosecutor is, the judge, the jury, et cetera, et cetera. I don't think most people, I'm making a guess here, but I think most people would not think that that's the definition Of competency as used in the court setting, because most people think of competency, we tend to lean into thinking about mental health issues or developmental disabilities or intellectual disabilities of some kind. So the social work lens tends to look at competency through that perspective, looking at um, somebody's ability to manage their activities of daily living, to you know, take care of life's business as it happens on a day to day basis, whether that's going to work or school or dealing with a landlord, you know, living in housing, things like that. What's interesting, though, about the term behavioral health, that's that's really an umbrella term that encapsulates a lot of things. And typically we think of behavioral health as inclusive of mental health substance use disorders, developmental or intellectual disabilities. It may be related to other cognitive impairments. It might include traumatic brain injuries. I mean, really, it's a broad brushstroke term. But when and I'm sure this is true in your business, too, when you're in the field of the work, people will apply that term differently. So it's smart to always ask, you know, exactly what do you mean by that?
1: And so. We know when somebody gets arrested, say they're not clearly in their right mind, attorneys can raise the issue of competency in a courtroom. The defendant then gets evaluated to see if the person is competent to stand trial. But I wanted to ask you about those evaluations. How do they work exactly and who performs those evaluations?
2: Good question. The court has either contracts with or appointed psychiatrists or psychologists that can conduct those competency evaluations. And it's it's not just the attorney raising the issue of competency. The court has to agree to it as well. So if the court agrees, we can go forward with a competency evaluation. The law offices of the public defender have a whole list of competency evaluators around the state who can conduct that particular kind of evaluation. Now, as I think you already understand, because you've been doing so much work around this issue, that evaluation is also very different than what another mental health professional might perform in order to understand somebody's diagnosis, what kind of treatment they might benefit from, that kind of thing.
0: One thing I think we hear from every industry, it seems like, is that it is hard to recruit and retain good workers or even enough staff, particularly in these areas. So do the courts need more evaluators, more medical providers, defense attorneys, prosecutors?
2: Oh, my gosh. Well, that's that's like, you know, the million-dollar egg right there. Right now, I think across the board, Every industry is suffering for whatever reasons, and I have my own <laughs> hypothesis, but I think the courts, if you ask them, would probably say yes, they could. They would benefit from more evaluators. You ask both the district attorney's office and the public defender office, and they would say definitely we need more attorneys. There was a workload study done for the public defenders that found that we were something like 600 attorneys short of what we really need in order to have fair and equitable um, workloads for the attorney pool, in general and in the community, there's not enough resources to meet the needs. So we have resources. We have some resources for substance use disorder, for mental health issues, but we don't necessarily have all of the right resources. For example, we don't have enough residential resources for people who struggle with mental health disorders or substance use disorders or people who are, you know, just struggling to manage activities of daily living. There's terms that get used like, you know, high mental health, which means, you know, diagnosis that means that that person probably needs a lot of services, uh, maybe medication, maybe therapeutic interventions. And there's, we just don't have enough of that here. And and it's not just, it's not just a New Mexico specific thing. I think this is a nationwide issue right now
1: the study that you mentioned the 600 short for the law offices of public defender is that statewide or yeah that's
2: that's statewide
1: okay so going back really briefly to the evaluations like you said those evaluators are trying to help determine whether a a person can assist in their own defense but getting to the root cause is a little bit more challenging why why does it work that way And is there a better way we can do these evaluations, you think?
2: Well, the why question is wrapped up in statute and legislation. So the statute that currently exists around competency um, lays out pretty clearly what the role of those competency evaluators is to be. And it really is to determine if this person is able to participate in their own defense. There's other measures that become part of the decision about what happens with somebody, for example, dangerousness, right? So if somebody is, incompetent and dangerous they're likely to be referred to the behavioral health institute in las vegas to get intensive treatment in hopes of treating what they call and then quoting this um, treat treating to competency which basically means treating to the capacity to participate in their own defense so the why is is predominantly statutory
1: at the point that somebody's getting an evaluation is there a better way to intervene to try to get to that root cause and provide a treatment plan like you're saying
2: well i think it would require statutory changes and you know it people would have to go in and dive into the current existing statute and rewrite it to reflect a different need or a different outcome and and to your point, though, it as a social worker, it seems a little a misuse of resources to some extent that we have these well-trained psychologists and psychiatrists who are meeting with the individuals. but the the need for that meet is so narrow. It's simply to determine, you know, it, whether they can participate in their own defense. It seems to me that we could be getting more bang for our buck if we could be talking through competency from a larger perspective and actually to your point about root, root causes, you know, trying to figure out what's underneath all of this. And you know what, what's underneath a lot of mental health is a lot of trauma, but if we can identify that maybe we could help people get routed to things that could help them assist them in attending to the trauma and getting the appropriate services that they need and possibly medication and other interventions so that this idea of being incompetent wouldn't be something that would follow them around. And it would reduce recidivism.
1: Yeah, I think you mentioned it was a missed opportunity in a previous conversation you and I have had. When does your unit come into play when somebody gets involved in the criminal justice system?
0: It
2: depends. It depends on what court we're talking about and what the need is and how it gets identified. So frankly, I think the social work unit for the LOPD comes in too late and we are called upon to get involved in a case typically when an attorney has identified that a client has something going on and maybe the attorney doesn't even know what's going on, but they know that there's something going on or the, cl- the client might disclose something to them and say, you know, hey, I've got a history of mental health or substance use or I have this traumatic brain injury. The attorney may want us to get in and conduct our own assessment, try to understand what's going on with this person and again, identify resources that if put in place for the individual could be a deterrent for them going to jail, which would be the ultimate outcome. You know, a lot of times we're asked for an opinion, something you know, something doesn't seem right. Although I don't know that we really truly have more time, but we do spend more time with the clients than the attorneys are able to just because of their workload. So in theory, we can establish a stronger, hopefully, and deeper relationship with somebody to really understand more about that person from a holistic perspective. So not just what brought them to court, but what's gone on in their life over time. What have their experiences been? How have they responded to those experiences? You know, a lot of people, as I said earlier, you know, they've experienced a lot of trauma and we all, we all kind of respond to the traumas we experience differently. So understanding how did that, event affect you? You know, how has that affected you since? Have you had any support or help attending to that experience or how you've experienced it? And then, you know, can we get you hooked up with some services that might reduce the impact of the trauma or the mental health or the substance use disorder on your life so that you can go forward? It's tricky for us because sometimes it's a very rapid succession of events that we get caught up in, involved in hearings and and going forward. And so we tend to have to move quickly with a lot of cases. And sometimes we don't. Sometimes we have the opportunity to meet with people over the course of years. And in that case, we're really doing a deep dive to understand what went on for folks before they even became part of the criminal legal system. And, you know, understanding what may have led them to be involved in the criminal legal system. And if we can, you know, undo some of the harm that's been caused to people, we can quite possibly interrupt repeated ventures into the, you know, criminal legal system.
0: It seems like it's pretty clear from just even this conversation, you know, this has been a long ongoing issue for many, many years. This is nothing new, but it really does also feel like we're at this point in time where there is a lot more conversation and focus on behavioral health issues as of recent. We, you know, have seen even the creation here in Albuquerque of ACS, the Albuquerque Community Safety Department. They are unarmed emergency responders going to things like calls for homeless encampments, which usually have intersections with behavioral health-related issues. BCSO, for example, as well, they created a behavioral health unit and hired social workers to work with their deputies in sort of response to county-related law enforcement calls. But as I was mentioning, this isn't necessarily a new problem. Why do you think that there has been, though, so much attention as of recent on how we handle mental health issues as of today?
2: It's not a new problem, but I think it's exacerbated. I think that the little perfect storms of events in our social world have caused people to have more needs. The pandemic of COVID alone, you know, studies are now coming out showing that there was some increase in some crimes and also an increase in suicide and an increase in unwellness for people. As a result of COVID, which if I could just add a little plug here, if people struggled with the restrictions on socializing during COVID, just think what it means to put somebody in solitary confinement in a jail or prison. You know, most people were out of their minds not being able to go out as often as they'd like to and felt that it impacted their mental health. And yet we No, I shouldn't say we, but it seems like it very little, you know, thought goes into what happens to people when they're put into solitary confinement and the implications for their health and well-being. The economic, you know, socioeconomic factors. We we know that people who've been living at middle income are now sliding further down towards the lower income part of the spectrum. More people became homeless when COVID ended. COVID provided some protections around rent. For landlords so that you couldn't get kicked out of your apartment. And once those were lifted, we saw more people entering into the streets. Prior to COVID, we had already seen an increase in families becoming homeless, women and children, and fam- entire families living out of vehicles. And so we've been edging up towards this bigger thing for a while. I think right now, it's become so evident to so many people. And, you know, folks that don't have access to resources predominantly are engaging in, if you want to call it crimes, it's crimes of necessity. You know, it may be trespassing in an empty building to try to stay out of the weather or stay safe or something like that. I mean, there's I I think we can't point to any one thing, but I think there's been convergence of many things that have led to this place that we're in now. And, you know, not everybody is wanting to help people get better so that this doesn't continue there are some people that would really just like us to get rid of people that are homeless that have mental health issues we you know there's people that are uncomfortable seeing those folks on the street or being approached by those folks and yet um you know we are community we are the community all of us and I don't know if I said it before but you know in my mind I always think that I'm only as well as my community is and we have a lot of people around us that you know need more than we have to offer and that's where things fall short and people you know find themselves encountering law enforcement or angry neighbors or whatever the case may be.
0: Right and those things can have major consequences that we all end up being either very upset about directly affected by, I mean, they they can erupt in many, many other consequential ways.
2: Right. Well, you had mentioned James Boyd at the beginning, and if you were in Albuquerque or maybe even the state of New Mexico, I cannot believe that you were not impacted by that right the ripple effect on what happened there and impacted in many different ways right you know some of us became aggravated and agitated and and the same with george floyd you know and these unfortunately these pinnacle incidents are usually the catalyst for change why does it have to take something really bad for change to happen hard to say but that's usually what happens and after james boyd There was a lot of community uprising around how law enforcement attends to people with mental health. You know, how do we create a different response? And then it was after the George Floyd murder that uh, Mayor Keller came forward with the concept of the Albuquerque Community Safety Department, which I think is one of the best initiatives to come out of the city in the entire time I've lived in New Mexico, which has been since 1999, I just, you know, they are non-law enforcement response. They're limited as well because they don't have access to all the resources that they could use to benefit people. But it it has reduced significantly by tens of thousands the number of police encounters that have to happen with somebody who doesn't need a law enforcement response. Maybe they just need somebody to check on them. Maybe they need to get, you know, routed to some medical care or, you know, maybe they they're dehydrated. That happens a lot here, you know, helping them out and not having to have police use their time and resources to attend to that. And we have people in our community who, have had less than positive encounters with people who they perceive as being homeless. And so that then creates a resistance to, you know, want to be compassionate towards people that are homeless or who are disenfranchised in some way. And I, you know, I think that part of that is just lacking some education, perhaps about you know, what's going on for somebody, you know, you know, the, the bumper sticker that says everybody's got something going on, you know, we've all got something going on. We do, we all have something going on. You know, I'm sitting here with you two, the public might see you a certain way, but I'm pretty sure in your personal lives, you guys got something going on. Right. And so, we need to remember that, like like none of us are, you know, living the dream all the time. And remembering that, you know, homeless folks didn't just get there automatically overnight. It usually has been a span of time and a lot of less than positive experiences. And many of those experiences are with different systems: law enforcement, mental health, uh, the jails, you know, probation and parole. You know, all of those systems impact a person's, you know, psyche, and then how those people experience people who aren't homeless. You know, I mean, I'm pretty sure that a lot of us are perceived as not friendly, you know, that we're not likely to be friendly towards homeless folks. So homeless folks have their own experience and people with mental health have their own experience of the community at large, because they've experienced a lot of negative things from us. Right. So it, It
1: goes both ways. We're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, we'll have more on our state's shortcomings and the potential solutions also being worked out. We're back with Casey Quirk, a Social Work Unit Director at the Law Offices of the Public Defender. So when I started looking into this issue, I learned quickly, you know, there are a handful of people, probably more, who get arrested again and again, it seems like. And because maybe they haven't committed a quote-unquote violent crime yet, it's a misdemeanor, they're found incompetent, and then their case gets dismissed. They're back on the streets, and in a lot of situations, you know, that doesn't really help anyone, it seems like. It leaves business owners frustrated, police frustrated— And then the person who got in trouble leaves them without any resources, really. What else do you see that we can do or or your agency even or parts of the criminal justice system that have, you know, these touch points with these people? What else can be done in these types of situations?
2: Well, the scenario that you're describing is in some ways late in the game of, of assisting people. By the time somebody's gotten themselves caught up in the court system and they're being evaluated for competency, and then as you mentioned, if it's a misdemeanor, if they're found incompetent, the case gets dismissed, and then they've been released to go out into the world and do whatever. You know, honestly, we need to do more work upfront. And I think that means having more community based systems and responses for people so that they're not ending up getting caught up in the system. Because once you are in the criminal legal system, it becomes a downward spiral. And for those people, and it's more than a handful of people who repeat over and over, but for those people, every time they go in, their life tends to go further and further down in the sense that they lose anything that they had, they may have had a job, they may have had a car, they may have had a home or an apartment, they may have had a dog, they may have had kids, they may have had a spouse, whatever the case may be, the system appears to systematically pull those things away from people each time that they get involved. So ideally, identifying people at a much earlier point in their lives, whatever their needs are, and then in the ideal world, having a plethora of wraparound services that would be available. Let's say if somebody um, appears at family planning, right, a couple, they're going to have a baby, it's a great time. But let's say in the family planning clinic, they conduct a little survey to see if this family might have had, you know, either one of the parents had some trauma or something else in their life, and not forcing people into services, but saying, hey, you know what, you might want to take advantage of X, Y, and Z services, maybe it's parenting classes or vocational classes, or, you know, maybe it's even getting some clinical services. So in the ideal world, I would promote that, get support to people up front before they even get close to the courts and the jails and the police and all of that. However, currently, you know, a lot of people are getting caught up in the system and they are being found incompetent at the misdemeanor level, and their case is getting dismissed, and they are being released into the community. This is tricky. It gets really tricky because a lot of people worked really hard to get us away from mandating people into mental health hospitals, right? So when I started my career, which is 40 years ago, that was what was happening. We were deinstitutionalizing people. Ronald Reagan was deinstitutionalizing people out of the mental health hospitals, which in theory was a great thing because there were so many abuses happening in those hospitals and people were staying for so long. However, the safety net on the outside was not built strong enough to really ensure that people would be released into spaces and places that could care for their needs in the way that they needed. And I think while the pendulum swung in the right direction, it may have gone too far without really setting up the safety net of services that people would need when they got out of those institutions. And I and so I think we've, we've kind of been, Reeling ever since then, and it's only gotten more pronounced as time has gone on because I think we've seen more social ills come our way. You know, we've got a whole new epidemic in the drug scene, right? Fentanyl, meth. When I started my career, crack cocaine was the thing, right? And right before crack, I could go into the streets of Detroit and go to people's homes and meet with them, and I didn't have a lot of fear. We were dealing with heroin. When crack came on, people started to get crazy. I'll just say it's people under the influence of crack were willing to do more things criminally in order to maintain their habit. That's when things started to shift. But now the shift has been so tremendous that we're not even able to keep up with what the fentanyl epidemic is bringing forward to us in terms of need and we know that you know ongoing use of drugs like fentanyl or methamphetamine certainly can promote mental health issues right and we're not prepared we haven't been prepared
0: along those lines you know what do you see as some of the tangible shortcomings in our justice system when it comes to how we handle mental health issues Are you trying to get me fired? No, no, I promise.
1: Maybe just list one or two. I don't know. There's probably a
2: lot. I'll use the LOPD as an example. And my bosses have heard me say this, so it's nothing new. But really getting the social work unit in to meet with people at a much earlier point so that we're not waiting until, you know, just a couple of weeks before a sentencing or something like that to get involved. So many people that we're working with have faced social workers and psychologists and psychiatrists and institutions. And, you know, there's always somebody examining them in some way. And there's resistance and reluctance to disclose things. Why should we disclose our most vulnerable things to you? Because there's not really... The kind of help that we need anyway might be some people's thinking. So, finding a way to get service availability to people up front when they first reach the doors of the courts or the jail would be the first thing. The competency issue clearly leaves much to be desired in terms of the idea of releasing people when they're found incompetent without any. Referrals or wraparound services in place, and then you know we're spending money on competency evaluators, but those evaluations are only geared for determining the ability for that person to uh, participate in their court proceedings. And I think that that's a shortfall. And like I said, I I think that the fix to that is in legislation to change that around so that maybe those evaluations could be used. For diagnostic purposes, so that, you know, let's say somebody is found incompetent, maybe then the social workers can find services for them based on whatever their diagnosis is. It would also help us understand what's going on for people more, you know, give us a clearer picture of what kind of mental health needs are presenting themselves or manifesting in the people that we're working with who've come through the criminal legal system. Those are a couple. And you know what? More more attorneys. Here's the thing. Ideally, if we could effectively address the mental health needs of people in our community, we might not need as many attorneys because fewer people would be entering into the system, presumably. Right. And so, you know, for me, that's the win. You know, let's get to a place where we're able to stand up services that people need. I mean, our unit We refer clients out of state to get things that they need. And not everybody can go out of state, either because of their conditions of release or the kind of insurance they have. But we just, we will go to whatever lengths to find somebody someplace. Sometimes we come up short, right? We don't have residential treatment centers for young women. That's a huge need. So there's a lot of gaps. But again, if we could get in, earlier, if we could start, you know, paying attention sooner to people's needs. And now we're seeing things happening with our young people that didn't used to happen that, you know, if we don't start addressing now effectively, are likely to have repercussions later.
1: So I want to talk briefly about we mentioned the Behavioral Health Institute in Las Vegas. That's where judges and the courts can send people who are found both incompetent to stand trial and dangerous. Defendants are ordered there usually temporarily for up to nine months to get treated back to competency. And But again, let's say they go through that process, they go through a trial, and then they face the consequences and ultimately get released back into the community. Up to that point, that person's been receiving medical care and regimented services in either a hospital setting or under supervision in jail. When they go to someplace like a halfway house or maybe a sober living facility after that, that transition seems to be pretty challenging, right? Who is helping that person through that transition?
2: That's a great question. The term re-entry is a little controversial, but that's what you're essentially talking about is re-entering back into community after incarceration, and we know from a research perspective and just from knowing people that that is one of the most difficult transitions that people make. The question of who is helping people make that transition is a good one. And it depends on where you are. There are programs in New Mexico that will start working with people while they're still incarcerated in preparation for their release. There was a program in Albuquerque called Crossroads for Women that used to go into the jail in advance of people getting released and start establishing relationships. You know, for women, we know that the time of release out of incarceration is the most stressful time for them. And that has a lot to do with families. So if we can get in and start working with them in advance of release, come up with some plans. What do you want to do? What do you need? Parenting, vocational, life skills, case management, counseling, Substance use services, whatever the case may be, and we establish a relationship with you, then you have an anchor when you get out, right? At least you know somebody on the outside who's been working with you, who's on your team, who's going to assist you in accessing the things you need. We have an issue because many of our service providers rely heavily on Medicaid funding for their services. And currently, If you're a Medicaid funded provider and you want to work with people who are still who are incarcerated, you cannot bill Medicaid for those services provided to the individual who's incarcerated. So that creates a wall. What has happened through something called the 1115 waiver, New Mexico along with many other states, if not all other states, but I know New Mexico and other states have been authorized to allow people to have their Medicaid turned back on 30 days prior to release, which would allow service providers to come in and provide services, in particular an assessment, and the assessment would identify what level of care somebody might need upon release. But those providers could come in, provide those services, and bill Medicaid and be reimbursed. Now, there's a mechanism that has to be put in place in order for that to happen, and it hasn't been put in place yet. But you'll hear the new medical and mental health provider out at uh, the Metro Detention Center, uh, UNMH, is in conversations with the Human Services Department here in New Mexico right now, trying to figure out how to create that mechanism to turn on Medicaid 30 days prior to release. Now, that's a great step forward. I'm going to say 30 days isn't enough, right? And there's another little interesting caveat here. We can think it's 30 days from release, but those 30 days can change into 25, 20, 40 (laughs) For all kinds of reasons, sometimes simply an administrative reason. But ideally, I think providers would want to be able to get in much sooner than that, 90 days, you know, to start meeting with people, establish those relationships, figure out what folks really need, and then route them, you know, either into their own program or other services. But your original question is, who is doing that? Right now, it's not necessarily who you might think it is. Out at MDC, we have a charter school, Gordon Bernal, who goes out and teaches classes. I guarantee that some of those teachers are also assisting their students in preparing for release back into community in some way. Is it comprehensive? No, probably not, because that's not what Gordon Bernal is about. But because I know those people, they're going to be working with people to try to make sure that whatever they can do to help them transition more effectively, they're going to do. You know, a lot of times, unfortunately, it gets wrapped up in funding. And so I mentioned Crossroads for Women. They were able to go into the jail because they had unrestricted dollars. They weren't tied to Medicaid. They specifically wrote grants to get resources so that they could go into the jail and wouldn't have to rely on a funding mechanism like Medicaid to reimburse. Relationships would get established, they could stay in touch, they could start developing a treatment plan right away, so that when people did release into community, they already had a plan in place. What a relief that is, instead of getting released downtown, maybe with very little plan. Can I just say one other thing, because I don't want to leave these people out of the mix. There's a group of people out at Metro Detention Center here in Bernalillo County called Social Service Coordinators. And they do an amazing amount of lifting on behalf of people who are residing in the jail and working diligently to try to get folks hooked up with services on the outside. And something else has happened in Albuquerque in the last maybe seven years. We now have the Resource Reentry Center, right? And so, this is now the drop off location for people exiting MDC. Now, this isn't true for any other jail that I know of in the state, but for Metro Detention Center, the transport van takes every single inmate who's getting released to the Resource Reentry Center, and people have to actually walk through that center to get outside. And on their walk through, they are offered a lot of services and information. Is it a perfect system? No. Is it better? Yes. It's far better than what we had when I got here. People were getting released into downtown Albuquerque in the middle of the night, wearing whatever clothes they were wearing when they got arrested, which might mean Daisy Dukes and, you know, spaghetti strap shirt. And it could be winter now, right? So the Resource Reentry Center is a huge piece of the equation. But again, they're in the same situation that the rest of us are in. We're all trying to get our people into the same resources.
1: Got it.
0: Along those lines, can you think of any um, specific story or an example of, of a successful reentry? And, and what do you think maybe helped in that situation?
2: Oh, my gosh. Well, it's easier for me to think of that from a prior place of Employment than currently. And part of that is because at the LOPD in the social work unit, many times once we have people connected with outside resources, we lose our connection with them after that, which is also probably a problem if we're talking about people maintaining contact with somebody that feels like an anchor or a tether. But, you know, 20 years ago, there was very little research on the concept of re-entry and what people needed. And now today, we've had a lot of people looking at this and what people need to succeed when they re-enter. And I can think of many situations with women predominantly, because that's who I worked with, where, you know, it was helpful for them to get connected to people before they left the prison or the jail. I had a woman once say, you know, that our program was well known within the penitentiary walls. And we took that as a compliment because it meant that word of mouth was saying, hey, this program's all right. They're going to take care of you. You know, when you walk out that door, you not only have a whole lot of responsibilities that are being placed on you, typically by probation or parole, but then you've got the rest of your life responsibilities that you left behind when you went in. And trying to navigate both of those things is incredibly difficult, difficult for most of us on a good day anyway, to navigate the day to days of children and rent and, you know, cars and all of those things. But then you think about somebody getting out of jail or prison where, you know, they've maybe got very little, if anything, to support them in getting jobs and that kind of thing. That's where, you know, things start getting dicey for folks. So in my mind, making sure that we're talking to people about what they need, what do they think things are going to look like on the outside, and then, you know, preparing them the best that we can, you know, talking to them about what it's going to be like to be on probation, talking to them about plans for how they can navigate getting a job or seeing their kids, you know, a lot of people are still involved in the courts, you know, trying to regain or retain custody of their children. And so, you know, attending to those things. So it's a, it's individual dependent, but I can tell you that when I saw people succeed, it was because they had an opportunity to develop skills in areas where they had not been able to develop skills previously. And that could be uh, landlord-tenant relationships, how to navigate those. You know, we, we assume everybody just knows how to deal with a landlord. Well, not necessarily. You know, how to read a lease agreement, how to make sure that you understand what the rules are, because a lot of people get into a lease agreement, they don't understand that there's designated parking spaces or there's you know, a certain way to contact maintenance, that kind of thing. So life skills.
1: Mm -hmm. I want, I want to get to a couple more questions we have before I have to let Chris go, but one topic that I know is controversial, but I want to ask you about it. We've talked about, you and I have talked about the idea of civil commitments before. That's when somebody can involuntarily be committed into treatment. And you mentioned, you know, in the eighties and nineties, there was this whole deinstitutionalization that happened without these safety nets But in cases where usually someone's feeling desperate, maybe it's a family member who wants to get somebody with mental health issues help, but it does deal with a person's civil rights and taking them away. What is your take on the approach of civil commitments? Should they be utilized more? That's a good question.
2: I think that any forced commitment has got to be handled with such incredible care there are families that are suffering because their loved ones are struggling with a mental health issue and the families don't know what to do. And some families are afraid, you know, they don't know what to do. They're at a loss. The whole reason why I think we saw the deinstitutionalization is that people were being abused in those systems. And quite frankly, people on the outside were abusing those systems by involuntarily committing people who maybe didn't really need to be involuntarily committed, but it was a way to get them out of, you know, the family system, the family dynamic. I think that there's a role for less than voluntary commitments, but I think that that's something that really has to be decided by psychiatric personnel, you know, people at psych emergency who can see the whole person and really understand what their needs are. It is one of the more sensitive issues. I think, I think there's a role for involuntary commitments. I don't think it's even a quarter of the role that it was in the past, but I think it has to be something that we go forward with very carefully and intentionally so that we tie up any loopholes where that could be used and would cause harm to people. You know, because the other thing is if we're committing people to psychiatric services, are we sure that those psychiatric services are the quality service that was really going to benefit the individual? And so that's, that's a whole other component of this. It's not just enough to get somebody into psychiatric care, it's making sure that that psychiatric care is, uh, you know, qualified and competent and capable of really attending to their needs.
0: Casey, we really do appreciate this extended cure conversation um, because I think it is eye-opening to a part of society that many of us interact with, but a lot of us make many assumptions about. So it is really great to hear your perspective. Is there anything that we missed that you'd like to mention or want the public to understand more about this issue?
2: Well, Chris, thank you for your final comment, because I think in that comment is more of what we need is, you know, people are struggling and people are suffering. And I think if, you know, we could take a little bit of a step back and not think that the first thing to do is call law enforcement. But to think of those other non-law enforcement responses that we might be able to lean into, you mentioned BCSOs, Mental Health Unit, and Albuquerque Community Safety, you know, leaning into those first. And interestingly, even though ACS, the Albuquerque Community Safety, has been front and foremost in my mind, there's still a lot of people in our community that don't know about them. I mean, I find myself educating people about that, that entity all the time. And so, yes, people might be doing things that we would wish that they wouldn't do, but does it really require getting, you know, armed response? I I don't think so. You know, the bigger question is going to be how do we then create the kind of compassionate response that gives people a place, you know, kind of a safe home where they can be to help them work through whatever their issues are. And that's, that's going to take a huge community conversation to make sure that we're doing it the right way. You know, everybody's got a good idea. One of the things we often fail to do is include the people that are going to be impacted by these decisions in the decision making. Right. And so making sure that we're talking to the folks who have experienced multiple incarcerations and who have been treated for mental health, who have experienced substance use disorders and getting them involved in the conversation, because honestly, that's where the brilliance usually is, is with the people who've gone through it. Who, You know, they can probably tell us much better what would work and what wouldn't work for them.
1: Casey Quirk, thank you so much for your time. We appreciate it.
2: Thank you very much.
1: Thanks again to Casey Quirk. She's had many roles, as as she mentioned, over her career of four decades, it sounds like, in this realm. Informative, hopefully an illuminating discussion.
0: Yeah, again, I think this is a hopefully a really helpful conversation to a topic that we know so many people have things to say about, but oftentimes there's just a lot of missing background that we don't know. And Uh, Gabrielle both of your pieces on this topic as well I think are absolutely worth checking out we'll post the links to them in the show notes and in this post on krqe.com we encourage you if you have an idea let us know I'm at chris.mckee at krqe.com also at McKee tv
1: and I'm Gabrielle.Burchardt at krqe.com via email and gburknm on social media thank you all for listening